Hey everyone, and welcome to the Kodakery. I'm Megan. And I'm Josh. This week we were joined by director Jason Wise. Jason talked with us about his recently debuted documentary, Wait for Your Laugh, a film about showbiz extraordinaire Rose Marie and her wildly successful and exceptional career. Shot on film and screened on film, we also talked with Jason about why he wholeheartedly supports film and how he ended up working in documentaries. So let's jump into the Godakery and talk with Jason. Hey everybody, welcome to the Kodakery. Megan and I are thrilled to welcome director Jason Wise to the Kodakery today to discuss his new film, Wait for Your Laugh. Jason, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor, actually. So let's start with telling our audience, maybe if you have some sort of an elevator pitch, I think we'll, it'll, we'll come to find out in the interview that this is an untold story. So maybe let's just start, because people might not know right off the bat what this is about. Yeah, so this is a film about a woman named Rosemarie, and she was predominantly known for her role on The Dick Van Dyke Show, where in the 1960s she played the first woman who wasn't a mother, a daughter, uh, a maid, a cook. You know, She played a writer in the writer's room of a fictional kind of comedy show, and she worked with Dick Van Dyke and Maury Amsterdam and all of this stuff. And it, the film is more about her entire life which is why this is such a special movie, is that she's the last person alive who knew Al Capone. Um, she opened the first casino in Vegas for Bugsy Siegel, incredibly connected to the mob, um, was the first female game show host in history, one of the strongest entertainers that, that I know of in Hollywood, and she's also the longest showbiz career in the history of show business. And nobody really knows this story, which is a shame uh, not just because it's incredible and it involves a mob and an amazing love story, but because this is one of the strongest, most important women showbiz has ever produced. And I think that on its own is the reason that people should take a look at the film and know what it is. Right. And, and when did you first come across the story? I mean, how did you stumble upon all this? Because it was, it was amazing. Megan and I both saw the film. And like you say, I mean, the like background characters of Al Capone and Bugsy Siegel and all this stuff, like, when did you first come across the story? Well, you know, originally, I think with all documentaries that are that end up a long process to make, it took us about three years to make, you start with wanting to make one thing and you end up with a completely different thing. Right. The one thing my wife and I always wanted to make was a film that kind of traversed the different entertainment mediums we ingest over time. Because I, I, I kind of became obsessed uh, a while back at these old pictures and everyone had a giant radio in their living room and they sat around it. And I kind of started thinking about how we, as entertainers, we kind of create these gods that we worship. And then they go away for whatever the next thing is. But the stars and the people who created it and made it work, they don't go away. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it would be interesting to sort of stitch together through the perspective of one person. And there are only a couple people left in the world who performed on vaudeville, which predates radio. Right. And, then, and then radio, and then television, and Broadway. And there's only one person left that is that person, and that's Rosemary, who is 94 right now. For those that don't know, I mean, that's a 90, that's 90 years ago when she first started, because she first started when she was four years old. I yeah, mean, that's, that's true. a significant fact, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so when I started this, we said, okay, we want to make a film that kind of looks at entertainment changing and this and that, and I, and I thought maybe it would be interesting to do Mickey Rooney. Now, you have to understand, I'm, I'm in my 30s, so to be talking about these kind of stars to distributors and everybody else, they looked at me kind of like I was crazy. <laughs> like, why would I want to make a film about Mickey Rooney or, or Rosemary? 
And, I, and the first thing is I just wanted to make a good story. I thought this was an interesting, untold kind of a movie. And in the process of trying to figure out how and who we would tell it about, somebody, uh, Rosemary's publicist, said, you got to talk to Rosemary. And this is after my first film, Psalm, came out. And so I had a little bit of credibility. And I said, I, Rosemary Clooney, she passed away. And he said, no, 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 Rosemary from the Dick Van Dyke show. And I thought, what would, be, what would be the reason? And he started telling me her story. And when he started talking about the mob, my, my head exploded. <laughs> I, I thought if this could be true, if there's any chance, this is 10% true, this could be the greatest story that I will ever tell. And she was married to one of the most underappreciated jazz trumpet players America has ever produced, this, a man named Bobby Guy. And it kind of predates the Miles Davis time when you had musicians who were the head of the band. Back then, it was always, you know, the singer, like, you know, the singer or the band leader or whatever else. So not a lot of people know who this guy is. But my wife in that story saw a love story. Mm-hmm. And I wanted a mob story. <laughs> and the two of us kind of put together what we were going to do. And we were able to have Rosemary, who's still alive, tell this entire story from her perspective instead of having, like most of these films, somebody has died, and so then you tell it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's my long answer, in that over three and a half years of production, this sort of came about very organically, and uh, I can't tell you how much I love, love, love the subject still to this day. She's the funniest person I have in my life. Yeah. And, and uh, you, you mentioned it before, one of the things that Megan and I are always interested in when we talk about documentaries is like, do you go in with a presupposed arc? Like, this is the story I'm going to tell. Or does it sort of just like unfold organically in front of you? And it's almost more like you're just trying to take hold of it and shape it a little bit. I mean, like, how how does it sort of unveil itself? And is it what you thought you were going to have at the beginning? God, you know, for every one of the, ever, I've made three feature films. And for each one, the answer to that is wildly different. Mm. Um, I think, and, and this well, this goes back, this is going to go back to film in a second on why it was important to shoot on film. When you make a documentary, you are, you are trying so hard to get some form of control. And that's very difficult to do because you're not working with actors, you're not working with scripts, you're kind of editing and writing and doing all those things as you're filming. With a narrative film, you're trying for anything to have spontaneity. You know, it's kind of the opposite. You're trying to have things look natural. And in a documentary, I, I think you're trying to do a little bit of the opposite. And we did a tiny, tiny interview at the very beginning of this on video because we were worried about the age of the people and we were worried about what would happen if they pass away midway. And that's a terrible thing to say, but it's a concern. But we wanted to shoot this, this movie on film and we wanted to so that we had from a workflow standpoint, a canvas. You know, we had a a certain runtime. It forced us to plan the unplannable. And after we shot that first first piece on video, uh, everybody, my wife, everybody, we said, look, you know, we got to go back to how we wanted to do this in the first place. This doesn't look right. This isn't how it is. You know, the interviews meander. It's not the right workflow. Mm -hmm. And so I guess with with the Rosemary film, to answer your question, we... What the film is is what we intended, but we never intended for Rosemary to be able to tell so much of it herself. And so, you know, it is a deeply difficult question to answer, but I would say in nine of ten documentaries, and most documentarians I think would tell you that it's somewhere in the middle. You, you don't, you have an arc, you know what you want to do, and if you're any good at filmmaking, you're listening to what it wants to become along the way. Yeah. 
I mean, we thought maybe the only kind of control you could have is the questions you you ask the the supporting interviews. I guess I don't know exactly how you handle it with Rosemary if you just let her go. Um, but when no, you're talking, no, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's somewhat of a control. And when you're talking to Dick Van Dyke and Carl Reiner, you know, you can you can lead them in a direction of some sort. But what comes out of their mouth, you don't have control over. Right? Yeah, well, I will tell you one thing that's um, an issue with people in their 90s is that they've done thousands and thousands and thousands of interviews. Right. And so what they do is they say the same thing they've always said. Mm-hmm. You know, when you ask, if I ask Carl Reiner, do you know how many times he's talked about what it was like to make the Big Van Dyke show? <laughs> I, know. I sure. mean, it's, 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 it's basically you might as well, you know, ask a general, hey, what's it like to deal with soldiers? I mean, <laughs> they've just, they, it's just, it's just so much of his. So what I did with the interviews, I, I, I sort of flipped it on it. I didn't allow them to give me your standard answers. I, I wouldn't allow them to relax. I made the interview situation different in the way that I was trying to learn from them as I was getting exposition so that these people, when they gave whatever they were talking about, would, would, would be educating through entertainment instead of just telling a general news story, which I think is the problem with a lot of these older interviews is they just give sound bites. Mm-hmm. And that's tricky. So when you do the interviews, especially with these people, you have to kind of be, to me, it's like a boxing match. <laughs> you have to sort of uh, get it. And I think we got one of the best interviews with Carl and, and Dick Van Dyke that they've done in a long I'm very, very proud yeah. of, of the interviews that are in this film. I hope that answers your question. It does. And when yeah. you say you, you wouldn't accept, you know, a canned answer, how did you push that by saying, well, you know, asking it a different way or saying... Because I'm, I'm not a journalist. So I don't really... You have to understand, a lot of people will walk into an interview with absolutely afraid to offend the person they're talking to, Mm -hmm. absolutely afraid to go off script or do something like this. But I'm not a journalist and I don't care. (laughs) I have a, I have a, I have a film I have to make. Right. And if I feel like my, the person in front of me, you got to lose that. I mean, Carl Reiner is an idol of mine. The guy directed the jerk. He was in Ocean's 11. You know, I mean, he created the sitcom that the reason we have all sitcoms on television, this guy is an absolute genius. But you got to throw that stuff out the window and sit down with him because when the Dick Van Dyke show was created, he was a struggling guy and the first season was a flop. Mm. And so, you know, I got to sit in a chair with him and realize this is no different from me. I mean, I'm terrified to make films. I'm terrified of how they're going to be received. And he was in the same place. So that's what we're talking about. Yep. Yep. And so for me, you know, it's it's Carl Reiner, sure, but he wasn't Carl Reiner then. So basically, I just sit down with him and I got to say, look, you know, don't, don't BS me here. I mean, I'll, I'll literally come in and just be like, what's, you know, I feel like I've heard this answer before. You've done this. That's not what I'm asking. And so, you know, and I will say, you don't shoot on film because of the limitations. You don't shoot on film because you only have 22 minutes on a two perf reel um, on a thousand feet. But I did. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did is because I had a natural reason to bully my interviews into what I wanted. Yeah. Absolutely. And so in the normal case, it's like, well, you know, I told you you have 20 minutes for the interview and the, and the subject has the control. So they have the ability to you know, cut off the interview. But in my case, when I shoot on film, and this is not the reason to shoot film, but I will tell you it's an added benefit in this case of my movie. I had all the control. Right. I could literally, if anybody got off topic or went a different way, I could just cut them right off and say, look, sorry, we're, we're rolling celluloid. We got to move on. Nice. And I would just, and it was totally an amazing thing that put me in power. 
I know this sounds so crazy, but I, it's something I can't stop thinking about from this movie. Yeah, it makes total sense. Nice. Yeah. Well, and you've you've mentioned film a couple of times. So tell us a little bit about about uh, you've got multiple film formats in here. Um, based on what we were talking about just before we started uh, the interview, you're also using it sounds like some vintage cameras. Tell our audience a little bit about what stocks you picked and why, and 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 give us a little bit of the background on. It. Sure. So we we I mean, Rosemary at her house had. Oh God, thousands and thousands of feet of 16 millimeter, super eight millimeter, regular eight millimeter footage that she had shot all the way going back to the thirties. And because she had some money in the 1930s, she was one of the rare people that had what I would call a home film camera. Mm-hmm. So it just wasn't common that you would film yourself doing stuff like everybody does today, but she did. And so we were very fortunate in that way, but, but it created a, you know, there are large gaps that she didn't film, you know, a lot of the gangster stuff, like there's no way. So it's how do we cover the uncoverable? Right. And, and what do we do for the little parts where we just need to film an insert to cover something? And it's not. So what we decided to do was film all of our B-roll and all of our, I don't really love the term reenactments, but I'll use it. All of our reenactments on period cameras, period lenses. And we went to great lengths to keep this stuff uh, seamless between her footage and our footage. And in fact, there's a lot more that we shot than I think people realize in this film blended with her footage. And we are rare, I think rare for filmmakers. We didn't want credit for it. You know, we didn't want people to know that we shot this, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what we did is I even found a film vault in, in Los Angeles. Oh, geez. Two and a half thousand feet of 16 millimeter film from the eighties that they forgot they, that they didn't know was in there unexposed and i bought that from them and we shot reenactments on that that's awesome um i mean this film has everything from nitrate film in it all the way through the only film formats that are not in it are 65 and 65 millimeter but everything else i mean we shot two perf three perf four perf we shot incredibly high speed with the 735 area extreme we shot really high speed stuff on 35 millimeter perf we shot on an Aerie SR30. We shot on a Codex, a 1940 Codex Cine Special Model 2. What else did we shoot on? We shot tons of Super 8 formats. We shot all sorts of wind-up cameras. We shot um, the very first generation wind-up Bolex a lot. Mm-hmm. Shot a lot of Bolex footage with um, their original lenses from the 1950s. Wow. These old Swiss Swithars and all this stuff. And, it, you know, it, it does this thing. It does, when you do that, and Rosemary's stuff was pretty much all slide film. So almost all of it was Kodachrome or there was some Ektachrome later on. Um, so the, and, and because she shot a lot of it in studios that were lit, this footage is perfectly exposed. It is absolutely marvelous looking. I mean, so much so that when we transferred it, and what we had to do with some of it, just because of the condition of it, we had to scan it. We had to you know, do a digital intermediate. And so we took it in at 4K, and it's so clean that it was almost like, wait, we don't want this to look this clean. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was, it was so good and in such good shape. And so, you know, it, it, was a, it was a big challenge to, you know, that's how we got around mixing all these different, or mixing all her different formats, was we did it ourselves. And we would shoot on, like, for instance, if there's ever black and white in film, we shot black and white. It wasn't like we turned anything black and white later. Yeah. So we would, we would shoot on, you know, 
the only black and white film stock you guys make right now for 16 and 35. We'd shoot on that. We'd push it one, two, sometimes three stops. And, and we would do that. So, and we would also do stuff like I use lenses that have, again, a very strange thing to do, but have bad chromatic aberration and they kind of have a fall off and, you know, the, the image sort of separates at the corners and does things. But we did that on purpose because like, if you look at the Al Capone scenes, it looks like these strange little flaws in the lenses make it look like, well, there's no way. Maybe this is real. Right. Because you know, who would shoot it this way? And so that was kind of our goal. We also did things like in Vegas, where we shot with the Bolex. Rose Marie shot with the Bolex. And when she did it, she forgot to put the filter slot in the side. So you have this blown out side of the frame. And so as filmmakers, when we did our reenactments, I mean, it was hard for us to rationalize doing this, but we, did, we left the filter slot out. And our footage matches hers perfectly i mean you would never know that she shot what and what we shot it's unbelievable yeah and it never at least for me when i watch the film it never there's no break where you're you're wondering which is new and which is old like it all just fits together perfect so i think it was worth the effort you put in because then you know you're really just focused on the story and the film itself exactly yeah that that means a lot seriously Mm -hmm. so you mentioned all of these old cameras old lenses where did you get them all? Did you have you have a personal collection? Are you renting these? Well, I do have a, I do have a personal collection of cameras. So that is that that's true. Um, in fact, it drives my wife crazy. <laughs> I keep I keep getting more and more and more cameras, and she says, "Don't you already have 10, 16 millimeter cameras?" I'm like, "Well, this one does this." She's like, okay. <laughs> so, anywho, um, uh, yeah. So we were very fortunate in that a, a guy in the AFC named Roy Wagner. He's a very, very talented uh, cinematographer. He reached out to us in the early stages on Facebook saying, are you really going to make a film about Rosemary? Now, this is a guy from the ASC. And so my director of photography and I kind of worship this man. Hmm. And he says, are you really going to make a film about Rosemary? I said, yeah, why? He said, because when I shot Wings, the television show in the early 90s, she was on it. And she was the nicest human being in the world. She brought me spaghetti sauce and meatballs and all this stuff. (laughs) And she treated us and all the crew so well. And we love her. And I've heard stories countless times through people who have worked with her on a technical standpoint that she was just like the most wonderful person. So he says, what can I do to help you? Just because Rosemary was so wonderful to me. Hmm. I said, what can you do? And then, you know, as soon as I hear a question like that, I'm going to ask. Right. I said, I said, I want to shoot this movie on film. And I, it, it has to be shot on film because if I don't shoot it on film, this is going to look awful. It's not going to be believable, the whole thing. It's just, a, it's, it's, I can't make it. And his eyes lit up. He goes, you want to shoot a documentary on film right now? I said, yeah. And he said, okay, fine. He put me in touch with guys at Photochem. He put me in touch with people, uh, Denny Claremont at Claremont Camera. He put me in touch with, I mean, this guy is an angel to us. And then when I went into, when I went into Photochem, and I look at the, the head of Photochem, has got a camera collection. I walk in, he's got the same Cine Kodak Special 2 that I have. That was my, great, my wife's great-grandfather's. Great mm. This is the same camera that they, they filmed the invasion of Normandy with. <laughs> and so when he, I see this camera, I go, we are shooting reenactments on the same camera. He's like, you are kidding me. I said, no. <laughs> he goes, well, I'll tell you what, your, your, your film processing is not going to cost you anything for this stuff. I'm like, seriously? He's like, yeah. And, th- and then, you know, when we went to Claremont Camera, we're like, 
here's what we want to do. And we started talking about it. And they had all worked with Rosemary. Denny Claremont, who's a legend in Los Angeles, and they said, whatever cameras you need. I'm serious. Like, this was like an That's unbelievable amazing. experience for us. And so it went from like, how in the world are we going to pull this off? And it wasn't really that film was the hard thing to do. Really, the film was hard because it was hard to convince anybody we should be able to make a film about an old, older woman. And we, we got a lot of resistance. So as soon as that started falling into place, we started realizing, oh, my God, people believe in this, this project. People believe in us. People believe in her. And everything started working after that. You know, it's amazing. You've talked about how many people have such a tremendous respect for her. Yet I still had not heard of her. Josh hadn't heard of her. You know, you hear of Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke, you know, and it's just another reason why it's so fantastic that you've made this film so that we she can become more exposed. But why wasn't she? Why why don't we know who she is? We We don't know who Rosemary is because... She doesn't care about that. Right. This woman is the only blue-collar showbiz star we've ever had. I mean, for her, truly, I mean, even during the Dick Van Dyke show, when things were exploding and her life was getting better and better and better, and she'd already been one of the most famous people in America in the 1920s. Right. She knows that this is a passing fad and that she, when this show ends, she's going to have to get back to work. I mean, Rosemary is somebody that literally has to keep working. There is absolutely no, and so like, you know, if you're doing the Dick Van Dyke show, that's wonderful, but you're going to have to work again. And so I think because of that, she never spent any time putting herself out there for awards. She never really, I mean, to her, she always thought actors and actresses who did like TV commercials and things like that were, you know, they should have been concentrating more on getting better at acting. Yeah. You know, she, and I think that's just the mentality of like a vaudeville star. Right. You play the you play the stages. You keep working. You don't stop, and you you know. So it's very different. It's a very different thing. Oh, she could care less about the fame. Could care less. Yeah. I mean, honest to God, it's not like it's it's just not the thing that drove her. What drove her is seeing an audience clap and love it right. in front of her. That is it. And you know, when you when you talk about somebody like her, you know, going back to the Van Dyke show for a sec. Mary Tyler Moore, this was an era where Mary Tyler Moore was getting a lot of credit from feminists and with the, the budding kind of feminist movement at that time because she wore pants. She, she was a stay-at-home mom, and she was getting all the credit for this. Meanwhile, Rosemary is in the writer's room right. busting her butt as a working woman in a career dominated by men, and she got no credit. And not to take anything away from Mary Tyler Moore, but, I mean... If you're a woman in that era and you're looking for somebody to give you credit for independence, I, I think Rosemary was the right person to see, and nobody did. So I, I really don't know. I, I don't know to answer your question, but that's our greatest asset is you don't total you don't know the story, and our toughest challenge is that you don't know the story. Right. So it's it's a tricky thing. Well, hopefully that this sheds a little light on that and makes us think a, a little bit more about it. You know. Yeah, yeah, and and, and uh, I was amazed how the way that you're you're telling this story, and it's like Al Capone pops up, and Bugsy Siegel pops up, and the beginning origins of Las Vegas is told through this. Like you cover so much of what is America today, and and these people who are who become legendary figures, she actually knew and interacted with. I mean, it was incredible to me that 
one person could <laughs> could be threaded through so many things. Yeah. Yeah. So well, when I made it, I kept thinking like I found the Forrest Gump of show business. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like I was like, how how is it humanly possible that this woman was you know on in her in her late sixties? How was this woman on a stage with Rosemary Clooney and two other women filling up thousand person stages for a live performance? But the same person was the most famous child star America ever produced. And she was born before Shirley. She was famous before Shirley Temple was even born. And then, you know, you throw in the mob stuff. How is this the same human being? And the the reason it is, is because you have an individual who just will not stop working, will not stop going. And uh, here's the reason. Here's something great that is parallels her fame. She was so connected to the mob and relatively oblivious to the dangers they offered because they offered tons of great work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Rosemary was protected by them because she sold out shows. Yeah, I was saying to Josh, it's rare that a person can be associated with the mob in such a innocent and positive experience. She would talk about in the film about how much she loved them, how much they cared about her. You know, I don't know if it's rare, but it was just definitely a unique part of her story is that they were like they treated her like a daughter you know yep yep absolutely and there's that one there's the one episode that happens in the 50s that kind of parallels what's going on today in hollywood a bit where she is kind of told to sleep with a producer decides not to or tells him to go screw himself basically and then has all her numbers cut out of the film right but there is talk rosemary said that if if he had kept pushing himself on her there's a very good chance if she had told the right people, that guy'd have been gone. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, this is this is. A, I mean, I'm not saying like Rosemary'd call a hit out on somebody, but I'm just trying to say like, you know, she was surrounded by people that did that kind of stuff. It right. was for real. Right. <laughs> right. When you say gone, you don't mean fired. You mean buried in the desert, gone. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, gone probably. Yeah. That's, yeah, concrete yeah. galosh is gone. Yeah. <laughs> the concrete galoshes, but I do think there's that era. There is an enormous amount of of admiration for the mob, and yeah. because of the fact that they were good businessmen. I mean, seriously, they really were. And if you kept on the straight and narrow and did your job and were on time, and you know, you had nothing but love for them. And to be honest, what's the difference aside from certain kind of killing? That the mob, mob running Vegas, mob running Cincinnati, mob running Cleveland, mob running Chicago, it's no different than now, you know, you've got a bunch of corporations that own these places yeah. and will send performers in different places. I, I mean, it, it's different, but I mean, it's just who's in charge of the places. Uh, so we've t- spent a lot of time talking about shooting on film, but you also screened it this weekend on film at the Landmark and the Angelica in New York City. Oh, we, we, we're, we're showing it on 35mm in Los Angeles at the Egyptian Theater. Right. 650-person house, which is, that is what I'm excited for. Also, at the Angelica, it had been quite a while since they showed anything on 35mm. So, you know, why was that so important to you, that the screenings be in the same format that it was shot on? Uh, I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll just be honest that I think, I really do think that showing on film is, there's... It, it, it's absolutely the best way to watch a movie. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And I think people have lazily been tricked into thinking that showing from, you know, a video format, a DCP, uh, God forbid, a Blu-ray or something like that is, is, is adequate because it's not. Right. 
is there's only one format you cannot duplicate in your house, and that is 35 millimeter, unless you're Quentin Tarantino or something. <laughs> but like, but I mean, there's there is a subliminal thing with watching a film and and seeing there's a different color detail. I mean, even things I've shot on video for exhibition look better. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you this, and it's hard to quantify to somebody who doesn't know the length that, but they know it. Everybody knows it. So why was it important? Because that's how it's supposed to be watched. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's the thing, in my mind, you put up with a lot of, you compromise a lot on films. Look, I can't shoot in this location, so we'll do it here. I can't get a car. You know, I can't get a historic car. I can't get the costume designer. You know, I, I kind of have the composer I want. Or blah. You know, there's a million little things, but they all equal what the movie's supposed to be. But the way your film is shown in the end and the way it's ingested by the audience, that's all you have. I mean, I'm trying to think of what the analogy I would give in life is, but it's kind of like you, you, you know, you get to have these children, but then you, you tell them, you know, they never get to go outside or something right. like as, as a, as a, as a husband and wife. I mean, but I just feel like it's, it's the only, it's the only thing as a filmmaker. I don't love the, I don't love like, you know, as an artist or to talk like that, but I would say as a filmmaker, it's the only thing that I believe I truly should have the control over because it's the only way that's how it's going to be seen and then taken in. And so you guys know, I mean, I'm talking to Kodak right now. So you, you understand and you believe that film is the way to watch stuff, but they really should do, they really should do some, some tests, you know, get people like my aunt in a theater. And if you watch stuff shot on like the Alexa and then projected on DCP, the major Hollywood blockbusters now that have $100 million budgets, all of them look the same. Yeah. Every movie looks exactly the same. And you know, as somebody who, I, I, I'm very into the way films are color corrected, and I, I follow that world, there's only so much you can do with the DaVinci Resolve suite, or you know, whatever, to that footage. And there might be a lot of latitude in the video, or this or that, but it still looks the same when it's projected. Right. So you've got, you've got all these major films, and that's the one advantage I have now. How can I, with a tiny budget and passionate stories, make my stuff stand out and make my stuff look different and better in a lot of cases? Well, I shoot and I project on film. Yeah. And I, I have an advantage that, that now these $100 million films, for what they perceive as a cost-saving thing, have, have given me the advantage. So now when an audience goes in and sees my film, they walk out going, well, that was a high-budget movie. Because it looks like what a high-budget film used to look like. Mm -hmm. But now, high-budget films don't look high-budget anymore. In fact, you can see all the makeup. You can, it's just a totally different mentality. And I, you know, I don't mean to get too philosophical here, but I think it's killing theaters. Yeah. Right. I think it's killing people wanting to go in for a different experience. I mean, why do people have their dumb cell phones on? There's no, there's no reason to focus your attention to the screen anymore. And I think it's all internal and subliminal for people like, let's say like my aunt. She's not going to understand why it looks better on film. She can't communicate why, but it does. Right. And I know that, I know that, look, I know that's a very evangelizing answer for, for film, but I really do believe in this. It is something that I believe deeply but it is very important. And I wish that, I wish they were teaching it and studying it at a film school level on why this stuff is important. Yeah. 
right? You know, from a projection well, standpoint. No, so I, when I was telling you that the that the perceived limitations of shooting on film were a benefit to my movie, I think that's a benefit to all movies. When when I went to film school, I shot. I hate to say I was one of the last last kind of years that everything you did that mattered was shot on film. And it made me an infinitely better filmmaker than what it is now, where, you know, you have a DSLR or you have a video camera, whatever it is you're shooting on and you, your memory is your issue. You know, when you have a limitation and you have, you have to figure out how much am I going to shoot on this production? How much am I going to shoot today? How much am I going to shoot in this scene? Do I want to shoot in slow motion? It makes you start thinking about things that I don't think creatively you would ever think of when you shoot on video. And it, it has huge repercussions into a movie. Because when you shoot on video, you may storyboard and you may say, look, this scene is going to be done to this song and it's going to be shot at a really high frame rate and this and that. But you don't, you don't have other little considerations that would change that scene from what you thought it was going to be. And the thing that we've lost by not shooting on film is the canvas. I mean, painters now, as a filmmaker, you can just walk in and paint the whole city because you don't have the limitations of where does the day stop and start? Mm -hmm. Where does the scene stop or start? And it's basically time is your enemy now. So you don't have this like, well, I have this reel. John, the actor, I need you to nail it. And here as a director is here, I'm good at communicating, getting you to it because we got to move on. So instead you can do 30 takes. And so it, to me, it's a very, very sad state of affairs in filmmaking that we've taken our canvas away. So it, right. forget the fact that, you know, we're never, ever colors are never going to match on video what they match on film. You know, having grain in a picture creates a liveness to the image that can't be quantified, but it exists and it's very important. Forget about that. Forget about the fact that we're going to absolutely in the next hundred years realize we've lost all of our data from this entire era and whatever shot on films will be very fortunate because we're going to lose it from a storage standpoint. Forget about that. Just know that without having a canvas to paint on and saying a thousand foot roll, it equals, you know, 22.10, 22 minutes in two perf. And I know I have to get what I'm trying to shoot within that amount of time or, you know, we load back up. And when you load film, it breaks the set for a second. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a natural cadence to the set has to stop and think about, okay, what are we doing? And you don't have that on video. So there's so many things from the aspect of the mechanics of just shooting on something that has limitations is the wrong word, but it's the one I'll use. It has limitations, an end and a beginning. And that is so important. So that's, that's one thing I just want to say about, about right. working with film on set with craftsmen. It's important that they have limitations. Yeah, I think what you're describing, too, and what we have heard from others is the discipline that it creates. Yep. And, and having discipline is extremely important. You know, it, it, it affects everyone from the uh, key grip to the actor themselves, you know. Right. And, Definitely. Yeah. My, my second feature film I made was, and we shot... We shot some film on it, but not, not a lot. It was a sloppy mess. I mean, the film itself is very good in the end, but man, the production of it was one of the worst experiences of my entire life. Yeah. I shot, I, I mean, if I, if I, I probably shot a thousand hours of footage for this movie. <laughs> wow. And I wanted, I mean, I, 
I'm se- I've never wanted to kill myself, but man, did I want to do it during the post-production. <laughs> In the editing process, yeah. yeah. And, and it could have been solved so easy. Yep. I yeah. could have said, look, you know, I'm going to shoot. In this case, I, I could have just said, look, all the B-roll is going to be on film. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have just been, well, yeah, we'll shoot it every way we can think of and this and that. And so all of a sudden I ended up with five movies to figure which movie I was making. So that's not the right way to do it. So, yeah, the discipline is incredibly important. My next film is completely shot on film, and it's the most dangerous, insane movie I've ever done in my life. And it's a documentary. So I'm doing, I'm doing a film called The Delicacy, and it's a documentary on sea urchin divers. And oh, abalone and sea urchin is a food, a nature documentary, part human story. You know, these are all people who know someone who have been killed by a great white shark. Wow. They dive down to the bottom of the ocean. They pick up a spiny thing and crack it open and feed it to high-end restaurants. And, you know, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy world. But we've made a decision that we want to shoot this all on film. And who in their right mind would take Super 16 and two per 35-millimeter cameras out on tiny boats in very dangerous waters filled with sharks and the nicest restaurants in the country. And we just got back from Italy. The film starts in ancient Pompeii. So who would take it also to Pompeii? You know, it's a, it's a very crazy movie. And But I did it because of the massive amount of things in this movie and, and little stories. Because I didn't want to have happened what happened on my second film, where I shot way too much. Yeah. I wanted a film... I wanted to correct that. And so the delicacy is my ability to rectify all of my pain on my second movie. So I'm shooting <laughs> on film. <laughs> are you oh, done yeah. shooting it or are you still going? Not, not quite. You know, it's, it's it, the, the challenge. We're probably about three quarters of the way through, but the challenge has to do with seasonal stuff. And I'm okay. releasing a film in New York city right now. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, seasonally it's tough. Uh, and we just bought my production company just bought this two perf camera my dream 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 camera and we wanted to shoot a lot of the um quote-unquote beauty shots with this camera so we finally have it and uh we should be done early early 2018 but is the threat of shark out of the way no okay all right just <laughs> no i mean sorry about you, that. Don't, you don't have time for this but i, I had a stupid having an accident on the on the film that was very 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 dangerous very 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 dangerous but I was really afraid of sharks, and I almost uh, I almost died from getting caught up in kelp, you know. And uh, so I was thinking, like, you know, I'm afraid of a shark, and I'm going to die from a plant. <laughs> Sorry for laughing. That, yeah. but, yeah. I know, I know. Trust me, the, the irony is now lost on me. Um, anywho, wow. but yeah, so that that particular film is shot on uh, on film, incredibly high frame rate, a lot of it out on these boats. And uh, so, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm an evangelist. I really believe in this stuff. And, uh, and we, we appreciate it. And, uh, it, it's definitely, it's something that we've heard. We've, we, we hear from you. We've heard from other filmmakers, the discipline Megan talked about, and even the theater experience, um, you know, friends of the Kodakery, the Metrograph in New York, the Alamo draft house, like those places are growing and they're offering a differentiated experience in the same way that your film looks different when it's projected by offering that they're really growing and they're bringing in new audiences. And I think we're at a place where people are tired of the homogenized experience. They're tired of the chain restaurant, the chain movie theater. They want something different. And that's many of the things that film can provide for people. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, it's not that like, I, you know, you have to be a realist as a documentarian. There are reasons to shoot on video. There mm-hmm. are reasons. Yep. It's just a fact. And a lot of cases it's, you know, I, my camera's probably going to get wrecked in this shot, so I'm going to, you know, or whatever. 
But I will, but I will say that doesn't take the exhibition format out of the argument. Right. Yep. Because I, I, w- I would love every single filmmaker that, that is up and coming and finding success right now to see their film or their, whatever they've made transferred to film right. and see it projected so that they can understand what they actually can do. Because the, the argument of resolution is just a, it's a joke. It is absolutely, it's, uh, it's just marketing. You know I mean? It's like when HD came out. HD, what did HD mean? Our phone shot HD. And now it's 4K, and 4K is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there are, there are 2K cameras that blow most 4K cameras out of the water. And, right. you know, you can scan film up to whatever you want. It's, yeah. it's just a, no, you know, well, I so, and, on on. Well, I mean, sometimes I think people don't uh, take exhibition into account maybe the way they should because that is actually the product the consumer interacts with. Like finishing the film and editing the film and saying, okay, I'm done. You're not really done. Like the final product that I see that I pay money for is the exhibition. And that's a really important part that I think sometimes doesn't get taken into account. Yeah. Right. Well, and also I think there's, it doesn't change if you're watching something on Netflix. None of this argument changes. And most people, you know, it's harder and harder to get people's butts in seats to actually go out of the house. Mm-hmm. And that's understandable. Fine. So the times are changing a little bit. It doesn't mean that I think forever theaters are going away. I think it's, you know, it goes in, it goes in a certain wave, and I think theaters are about to really come back. Yeah. But, but what I can tell you is it's still important to shoot on and show on the medium you want, you know? Stuff, stuff on Netflix still looks better shot on film. It just does. I was trying to think. We had this professor from the um, NYU Teacher School of the Arts, Alexander Rockwell. He teaches filmmaking. Oh, wow. he, he said something to us about it was something to do with referencing um, the the guy from Talking Heads in a book he wrote about sound and what vinyl does, like the whole actual experience in your brain, like listening to the audio that way as opposed to... Here's what Alexander Rockwell really said. You know, it's interesting. I read a book, uh, um, David Byrne, the musician, Talking Heads guy, um, he wrote a book called On Music, and there's a, there's a section where he talks about digital sound versus analog sound, and he talks about how basically analog is a slicing, almost like, you know, like a, like you know, you're making prosciutto, like you slice the sound in small slices and then you reassemble it, and that the ear can... It, it, they've done studies on the brain. You know, they've done these graphs. The, they've studied the brain, and it's actually slightly disturbing to the brain to have to reconstruct the 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 the, the sound wave. Hmm. Um, and the analog, you don't have to reconstruct it. It's just there, like a the, you know the needle on a record, literally like responds to the actually analog sound wave. It doesn't have to rebuild it as it does digitally. And I think that visually, digital film isn't so different. These pixels, these kind of like you know. Uh, not random, but absolutely geometric uh, pixels that are broken down into film, and the fact that there's no pulsation in it, it it's just kind of like it's like it's like staring at a light bulb. I think there's something slightly disturbing when you look at that image. That's a little not soothing, and film has kind of like this, you know, random anarchic pattern to it that I think is imperceptibly kind of soothing. I know that, you know, that's this way I would almost explain it. Like, I think it's very similar to digital music. I think that we've, we've gone so fast technologically that we've forgotten the kind of organic nature of things that in their imperfections, there's something kind of soothing to them. Okay, back to the podcast. I mean, I, I do think there is, there is, uh, 
things are smoother with film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yes, just... but they're deeper too. It's 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 yep. odd. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it's odd. You know, I, I learned really quickly, by the way, in film school. My very first short film, or my senior thesis film, took place in World War II and present day, and it took place. It was it's a it's a uh, you know. And we shot with period vehicles and Nazi soldier kind of stuff. It's, a, it's an intense film, but I learned real quick. If I shoot on black and white reversal stock and have crazy blacks and crazy whites and really, really don't be afraid to push this thing and make it look like war photography, everybody believes my costumes. Right. I mean, right. I realized really quickly what a tool this is for production budget. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I've implemented Rosemary. Right. I mean, in Wait for Your Laugh, because you watch that film and you think, this looks right, but yet these people are looking at the camera and breaking the fourth wall, like, what's going on? You know, and that's like the trickery of it, but it's just, it's a production budget. It just makes it look better. So in regards to, like, the vinyl and that stuff, I agree completely. It sounds more pleasing. It looks more pleasing. It makes you believe. Yeah, we we talked with Michael Sajazamus, who's a um, cinematographer for The Walking Dead, and they shoot on film. And he he spoke the same thing about the look of the zombie. Like if you had it too much focus, and you could like actually see like the costumes are not one hundred percent. He's obviously these are not real zombies, but the film it just casts something on it so that you don't think about that. Yeah. They just are zombies and it's very believable. Yeah, and they had like three grades of zombie. There's like the far away zombie, the medium zombie, and then the, the up close zombie. Yeah. And, but he he, but, he spoke very highly about how film helps him, um, helps the viewer not get caught up in the fact that it's a costume, you know? Yeah. Yo, yeah. This is a topic I could talk very long about, but yes, I agree so, so much. I mean, I, I have a, I have a quote unquote horror film I'm going to make in about two years. And it's, uh, I'm kind of on a slate of, of films. I have too many ideas right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, that will be, that's another film. If, if film wasn't here, I, wouldn't, I would not make this movie. Right. I absolutely would not make it. So this is your third feature, correct? Correct, yeah. So you're, you're at the beginning of your career. You're, you're off and running. Give our audience a little bit. We have a lot of film students that listen, a lot of young filmmakers. How, how, did, you, how did you get this far? Like, give them, as somebody who's just breaking in now, you're, you've got a couple features under your belt, things are starting to roll. What were the steps coming out of film school that you took to really launch your career? You know, I think like uh, a lot of people, I just I started shooting everything I could. And the, the, you're going to hear from driven people that you're either in or you're out. And this, if you're a film student and you have any, if you have any iota of a backup plan, you have one tiny, if you have anything else you would do if you're not doing this, you're going to fail. It's over. It's over right now. And you should know that not as a negative. Take it as a positive because you're not going to waste years and destroy your sex life and your marriage and your everything trying to do something that's impossible because you will take your backup plan eventually. But if you have no backup plan and you are literally willing to call your uncle and say, uh, yeah, I'm completely broke. I'm going to lose my house, but I need $5,000 to do X and process my film and finish it. I'm sorry. If you're willing to do that, you're going to be fine. Because the job of a filmmaker is to constantly solve or at least rationalize the hundred of them a day. And not all of them are about filmmaking. Some are about 
like right now I'm dealing with, should we go, should we expand into the tri-state area theaters with this new film? And there's so much to think about in that question. So if, you know, and that's not filmmaking. Right, right. But it is. So mm-hmm. when, when it comes to like being uh, an up and coming person, do everything you can, but focus on what's good. So as soon as a story sticks with you, especially if you're a documentarian, if you're laying at night in bed and you were, you filmed a bunch of stuff and one of them was about dog walkers and that story about dog walkers will not weave you while you're laying up and looking at the ceiling, follow it, follow that story. Because I'm telling you, there is a God and that God knows good story. And every once in a while they give you a hint, you're onto something, right? but you have to listen and you have to move forward with it. And do not listen to distributors. Do not listen to agents and do not listen to managers because what they know is what's popular at this moment. Right. And I was told a million times, my first film, Psalm, about sommeliers and wine, don't make a film about a subgenre within a niche, within a niche. And that film exploded. And it did because it's a good story and the food and wine world was about to explode. And I could feel it. And the same with Rosemary. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I was told, don't make a film about an old lady. Don't make a film about a woman. They don't sell. But I could feel that this, it's time. I mean, I have two daughters. I want them to look up to the right person. I, I just, and it's a good story. And you got to go with your gut on this stuff. I, I wish that somebody had told me it's not going to be easy and where you should take your victories from. Your victories are not from the film grossed well. They're not from it got good reviews. They're from you actually finished the damn thing. <laughs> and it was actually watched by people. That's your victory. Right. Everything else is business and maintenance and the hard, terrible stuff. Even if your film does well, it's hard. But it's the greatest thing in the world. And my last piece of advice to somebody coming, don't forget what you asked for in the beginning. So if it works and it's hard or it's great or whatever, Remember in the beginning, you wanted to do this. <laughs> trust me, you'll forget when it gets hard and you'll say, I can't move on. This is too hard. Or I'm afraid to ask someone else for more money. Or I'm afraid to ask someone to put me in a theater. I'm afraid to do these things. Or I'm afraid to look at contracts the right way. But you know what? You asked to do this. And, it's like, you know, and if you own it, this is a lot of fun. It is so much fun to make movies. It is so much fun to see an audience see them. Oh, it's the best. It sounds like there are some parallels there to Rosemary's work ethic as well. She yeah. uh, she kept going. You know, there's I think there's something there's something there. There's a little yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. I mean, every film I've ever made is definitely about incredibly determined people. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is because I feel like I am one, but I think Rosemary represents everything that's right in work ethic. You know, don't don't let your cell phone and YouTube make you feel like you can't make a real movie, you know, Yeah, because right. you can. I think the, the fact that she doesn't look for the fame or the um, recognition and then the same way you're not looking for um, some sort of a box office number that you've hit. I think that has a lot right. to do with it as well. Yeah. yeah so. Well, you know, oh boy, you know, the box office stuff, that's all tricky because it's all, you need it, what, though. <laughs> you, oh, you absolutely do. But, and but so did she. <laughs> really? So did she. Yeah, you need it. But, but you know, you want to be, and I don't know, this is just my opinion, you don't want to be 
the greatest, biggest success. You don't want to bomb because you don't want to chase a last crazy success the rest of your life. And you don't want to not be able to make another film because you bombed. What you want is the way Rosemary lived her life. Be successful, have great work ethic, finish your work on time, you know, do the stuff right, but always, you know, keep a level headedness and find success in the right places. And I think that that's really tough to do in today's world, especially with like the instant, you know, you get reviews for your movie instantly. Yeah. It used right. to be, you know, I mean, you'd wait till the newspapers came out and you'd find out, but it's not like that anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you have to kind of distance yourself from the instant culture and realize it took you three years to make this movie. Right. <laughs> Don't let it take one minute to uh, define to you. This, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And luckily, you know, the film is being very well received. I don't mean in my case, I just mean in the case of just the, the, the overall energy of being a filmmaker. So it's so, a very meandering answer to your question, but that was a that good I, one. Yeah. So, so where can people see the film now? Right now it's playing in New York city at the Angelica and the landmark on 57th. And we're going to expand to a number of places in the tri-state area come this Friday. It opens up in San Francisco as well. This Friday, 1110 uh, in the Bay area, Berkeley, San Rafael. And then the following weekend, it opens up in Los Angeles. And we'll be playing 35mm at the Egyptian Theater. Uh, we're playing at the Lemley Royal, all this stuff. And it opens up in Philadelphia as well, and hopefully way beyond that. So we'll see. And people can also go to waitforyourlaugh.com um, as well, I would imagine, to get some sort of updates. Or should they, there's a Twitter page. How can we, how can we find out? Yeah, the, wait, waitforyourlaugh.com is being constantly updated with showtimes. We're adding Great. many. You know, we're adding them as we speak. I think I missed like nine calls during this. Um, yeah, so, so, so it's, that's where you can go. And then Rosemary has a hilarious Twitter account. If you want to see a 94 year old woman, I think it's at Rosemary official. So it's, it's been a fantastic conversation, Jason, and uh, we want to be mindful of your time. Um, and I, it sounds like you've got a lot of things going on. So one, one last question. Um, when people think about documentaries, a lot of times you think about it as you're, you're teaching somebody about something they don't know about. You're unveiling this story. You're showing another angle on a, an important historical moment. But what do documentaries, what have they taught you about yourself in the process of making them? What have documentaries taught me about myself? Oh, boy, man, that's a, that's a tough last question. <laughs> um, just on the documentary format, I will say there is, a, there is a myth that they're any different from narratives. They're both a complete manipulation of reality, and they're both a perspective and what somebody wants to show you. So if you're a documentary filmmaker, make, make that film you know, as artistic and however you want to make it. It doesn't have to be any different. What it's taught me about myself is there are stories out there that you can film right now that are unbelievable. And I never meant to make documentary films. It was not my goal. I never intended to do this. But I was able to find stories out in the wild that wanted to be filmed right now. And instead of sitting down and writing a script and having to go sell that to somebody and go through the whole process of the 10 steps to make a movie, documentaries were the gift that allowed me to just start making films. And, you know, I, I hope to make them the rest of my life and also narratives, but documentaries taught me that um, you already are a filmmaker. Yeah. You know, you don't have to get permission to be one. Good answer. That's <laughs> a great <laughs> note to lead on, yeah, leave on, I think. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Jason. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you and good luck with the film. Thank you. You guys are wonderful. It's really an honor to be on it. Thank you so much. 
great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention.